Hello and welcome along to The Rouge Report, the place for all the latest news, gossip and analysis from the world of cycling. I'm Ollie Attinger and I'm here with YouTube's best cycling pundit, the one and only Lantern Rouge. How are you today, Pat? Oh, I'm pretty good, just here in the night time in sunny Brisbane, enjoying winter and happy to be on the pod with you, Ollie. Excellent, good man. How was your weekend? Did, did you get out on the bike? Oh, a little bit, just did some two by 20 minute efforts out of the airport, but nothing too crazy. The Vuelta, Vuelta's been keeping me up very late at night, so my sleep pattern is pretty much destroyed at this point. Excellent, excellent. Very good. Okay, this week we will be talking about the Vuelta, obviously. What else? We're going to be talking about the Tour of Germany. Not everyone's favorite or most well-known race, have to have to say. And of course, we'll be rounding up the big cycling stories from the last seven days. Let's get into it. Okay, Pat, Lantern Rouge. First of all, let's let's establish how you wish to be addressed. I know you have quite the following on YouTube these days. You're something of a star. Please, please tell. I mean, a little, I'm a little bit narcissistic, but I think I'm pretty comfortable with just going with, with Pat for the purpose of the podcast, although Rouge Report, I don't mind that little homage to the YouTube channel, but I think calling me Lantern it might be a bit grating, grating for some of the listeners, so, so Pat will do. Excellent. Okay, very good. Right, let's, let's get going then. So, the Vuelta. So, what are we? We are a week. The first week's done and dusted. Um, I have to say, from, from my perspective, I, I'm not like a Vuelta super fan, and I know people are going to have some issues with that. I appreciate it's a very good, exciting race and all the rest of it. But sometimes I just struggle to get into the racing, probably because, you know, all, all the teams generally field um, not their most well-known riders. Naturally, it's not the biggest Grand Tour of the season. So, Pat... I mean, first things first, what, 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 what's your view on the Vuelta? Well, this Vuelta is similar, similar to what you've said. It, it has been an afterthought for some teams, and that is Ineos. Clearly, the Vuelta is by far their weakest team for the three Grand Tours. But, and also, the Vuelta sneaks up on you. Second stage, there's already a solo breakaway, general classification action. Naira Quintana, you know, going solo from 3Ks left. It's not like the Tour de France where you sort of warm up to it. The first week's a bit quiet. There's some sprint stages for the sprinters to win and people like Chris Froome are just plodding along in the peloton with nothing too crazy happening. Then you've got the Pyrenees and Alps later, whereas the Welter, if you blink, you could have already this first week, massive stages and big GC action. So... It's been exciting, but I understand how sometimes it's straight after the Tour de France and some of the teams don't feel their strongest teams. But conversely, I would say Jumbo Visma have fielded a stronger team than their Tour de France team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess what, Jumbo Visma, who have they got? Let's have a look at their lineup for the Vuelta this year. Yeah, they've got some, I mean, look, they've got some decent names, right? I mean, Roglic, George Bennett is is very, very good rider. Robert Haysink. Kreuzvik is there as well. Tony Martin as well. I mean, it's seriously strong, right? Yeah, they were. They came in with by far the strongest all-round team. Maybe not by far close with Astana, but Sepp Kuss as well, the young American. He's riding really, really strongly. But Stefan Kreuzvik, he's already had to leave the Vuelta because of the crash. 
he, he hurt himself in the team time trial crash. But on paper, before the start of La Vuelta, extremely strong team. Primoz Roglic was the favourite for the Vuelta before it started, given his time trial ability and what he showed in the Giro. 100%, 100%. So let's talk very quickly then, Pap. Let's test your Vuelta at España knowledge. Can you name the last three winners of the, of the Vuelta? Simon Yates last year, Chris Froome 2017 when he had the salbutamol adverse analytical finding and 2016, oh, now we're getting close, Fabio Aru. I th- that that's right, isn't it? Yes, that is right. I love how specific you were as well in, with 2017, Chris Froome, the adverse analytical finding. I think, yeah, I think that's when that sample was collected. It was in the Vuelta 2017, the famous sample. It was, it was. The less said about that, the better though, eh? Yeah, well, Giro 2018, he came back strong, didn't he? He, he certainly did, he certainly <laughs> did. Um, cool, so Pat, right, first week, what have been the highlights? What's happened in the race? Well, it's, it started with a low light, and that was the team time trial, which was a 12-kilometers time trial through on the first stage, a sort of prologue of sorts, but it was stage one. And Jumbo Visma, the, with the race favorite, Primoz Roglic, went over a wet patch and went down super hard, crashed, lost about 40 seconds on GC to Astana, and people were expecting Primoz Roglic to be in the red jersey. So there's a lot of controversy with that, given that why was there a wet patch on the road? It was a dry day. And apparently a, a kid's swimming pool up the hill had collapsed or deflated and let all this water run down the hill and you know, on this really technical corner caused UAE Emirates to crash as well. Who That didn't receive too much coverage. And they have someone in top five on GC, Tadej Pogaccia, and he lost it, you know, a minute on GC then. So that was the first low light of the Vuelta. And the second for me, the most entertaining part of the Vuelta so far has been the Movistar team dynamics or lack thereof. It is a classic for the ages, like Stephen Roach in the Giro 1987, like Bernardino and Greg LeMond in the Tour de France in 86. It's Alejandro Valverde and Nairo Quintana battling through supremacy as who is going to be the Movistar leader. Yeah, I have been keeping uh, a, a something of an eye on that. Yeah, so I saw what happened on, on, on Sunday. So the day before the rest day, we didn't we have Mark Soler kick up a fuss or something. He, he wasn't obeying team orders um, and no one was happy. So M- Mark Soler, if, if you don't know who he is, he won Paris-Nice. He's a, not a young anymore, but a rel- relatively experienced, but still in, in the middle of his peak. Spanish rider, and he's been a loyal domestique for Movistar for a number of years, assisting Quintana and Valverde. And he was up the road in he was up the road in Andorra, and Naira Quintana attacked out of the main group behind them, and he got orders over the team radio to sit up and wait for Quintana to basically assist him and tow him to the line and help with his GC GC time, and that meant. Mark Soler had to forego the opportunity to contest the stage win. Whether he would have won or not, I'm not so sure. Tadej Pogacar was coming at that group, coming at him pretty hard with Quintana. But he had a massive tantrum, hissy fit on the road, throwing his hands up in the air. And I think one of the guys on Twitter I like to follow, Mihai Kazaku, said he had two options. You either do a Mikel Lander and you take out your headphone, your radio earpiece and you pretend like you've heard nothing and just go for the stage win or you just professionally 
cop it and wait up for Quintana. Having a tantrum like that, given how much has been going around about Movistar and their lack of team unity, just made it added fuel to that fire. Obviously, it's a home race for them, right? So it's a very, very important. But I mean, who who is their leader at the race? It's Quintana, right? No, I think. Well, this this podcast you're probably going to listen to it close to or just after the individual time trial. And Naira Quintana, as we're recording, is in the red jersey, six seconds ahead of Primoz Roglic. But I expect Alejandro Valverde to make up the 20 seconds he's lost on Quintana and he will be ahead of Quintana on GC and I think will be Movistar's leader and I think should be Movistar's leader. Primoz Roglic, God forbid he doesn't, you know, hopefully he doesn't crash tonight or anything like that. But if all goes normally, there's no crashes, he will be ahead of them on GC by, ahead of Quintana and Valverde and Superman Lopez, the Astana rider on GC, by at least two minutes in the case of Lopez and Quintana. And he will probably put about 30 to 40 seconds on Alejandro Valverde, who's a better time trialist than Quintana. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Roglic is, is much more um, strong in that, in that event, isn't he? Yeah, Roglic is on the, the level of, a, of Chris Froome and Tom Dumoulin. He's an elite individual time trial rider. Um, what else has happened this week? So we've had a lot of uh, weather issues, I suppose. Well, first, first thing, yeah, that first team time trial stage, yeah, so <laughs> there was some video footage, wasn't there, going around of this, of this leaked paddling pool which is hilarious and honestly could only happen in professional cycling <laughs> so you had a load of riders go down i mean who who, who came out off worst from, from that what was it steven croisvick so I, I really i had a hard look at this the crash footage and something that i've been thinking about for quite a while now a couple of years is thinking about how crashes affect riders differently depending on the exact type of the crash and Primoz Roglic he's he was first in the group leading the Jumbo Visma through the corner and his front wheel he's lost his front wheel completely and he's gone down with his bike on top of him gone down on his left hip and his the side of his body and slid out so that's actually not that bad a way to crash it's not ideal crashing but even at speed on a wet wet surface that's you're just going to get road rash and you're probably not going to break anything or really impact or hurt anything too badly. Where Stefan Kreuzweg has hit his other riders and catapulted over his handlebars, probably at lower speed, but the fact that he's gone over the handlebars and then he landed on, I mean, people know, professional riders, they're not carrying much fat to begin with. Stefan Kreuzweg's no exception, the coat hanger. And he's landed straight on his knee and pretty much caused him to he didn't break it or anything like that, but it just made it very painful for him to pedal, to put power down. People would know that have had a knee injury. Pushing hard and pushing power through the pedals is extremely difficult if you've got a very sore knee. And if, if you're trying to climb mountains in the first week of the Vuelta, he just had to withdraw. So he, he suffered the most in terms of having to withdraw. I think the, teams, the team that actually lost the most was Tadej Bogaccia the UAE rider, he lost a minute and seven seconds. They went down on that corner eight seconds before. Uh, sorry, they went down on that corner eight minutes before Jumbo Visma. And if you, if anyone's seen the crash footage of UAE going down, it's pretty horrific. They, the sound and they all slide out into each other. It's very lucky none of them were actually hurt too badly. Fabio Aru in that team as well. So Pogacar's fifth on GC and he's a pretty strong time trialist. He is the current Slovenian 
national time trial champion, although Roglic didn't contest that. So I would expect Tadej Pogacar maybe to leapfrog Lopez and Quintana into third on GC after this time trial, with Valverde remaining ahead of him by 30 to 40 seconds. But he lost the most because had he not crashed, he would be close to Roglic in the overall classification after this time trial. Nice, nice. Do you know what happened to the uh, to the owners of that paddling pool? I think Alexander Vinokurov paid them five thousand euro so that Mihail Angel Lopez got to wear the red jersey <laughs> in the first week. That was that was what I saw on Twitter a couple of in a couple of places, but may not be true. Excellent, excellent. It just it always makes me laugh, you know. So there's a big one of the biggest cycling races in the world is coming through your your hometown or whatever. And I, I always wonder what goes through your mind to think, you know, what we're going to do, guys, we're going to set up this, this sort of portable swimming pool, essentially, just by the, the, the course, okay? And that's absolutely fine, and it shouldn't be, cause any issues whatsoever. And then, hey-ho, there's a leak. That's bike racing, right? <laughs> and, not, and not just setting it up near there, setting it up on top of the hill exactly above the most dangerous corner. It's, it was a very sharp left-hander, bad camber. Camber meaning it was a, a bad angle of the corner, so there wasn't even much traction for the riders to begin with. There was a white-painted line in the apex of the corner, so white-painted lines on the road have less friction than ordinary bitumen. And when water goes on top of them or when there's water on the tyre patch, there's basically no traction, and that's why... If you go and watch the UAE crash from front on, the minute their riders or the second their riders touch that white painted line, their wheels completely go out from underneath them. So not the best positioning of that pool or timing, but Astana benefited from it. So they were pretty happy. But it, I'm just glad that Primoz Roglic GC ambitions weren't dashed in the first 10 minutes of the whole Vuelta. That would have been terrible. Not, not, not the best positioning, Jeff. Very, very, very diplomatically put, Pat. Nice. Uh, okay, cool. And look, what, what else is going on in this first week of the Vuelta? Has there been any uh, gossip, anything like that that's come out of the race? Obviously, we've got the discontent within um, Movistar, but, you know, irrespective of that, they're still performing well. Um, I guess Ineos, Ineos have had a terrible first week. Yeah, Wild Poles and David de la Cruz lost a significant amount of time in one of the stages, early stages, when they got on the wrong side of a split. I think Poles lost 10 minutes or so, maybe even more. So immediately Ineos have had no... Immediately Ineos came out and said, we're no longer contesting general classification. We're just going to hunt for stage wins. I think it, it was stage six where David de la Cruz for Ineos had the opportunity to take the red jersey. And he was in a breakaway group that included Dylan Turns. And he was nine seconds ahead of Dylan Turns in front of him on GC. Astana were, had the red jersey with Michael Angel Lopez back in the peloton. At least they, they decided to let go of the, the red jersey. They'd given this breakaway seven minutes because De La Cruz and Turns aren't really threats to him in the long run. And David De La Cruz opted to drive the front of the peloton or to drive the front of that breakaway for two kilometres before the base of this climb and up the false flat of the last climb of the day, with Dylan Turns sitting right behind him on his wheel, nine seconds behind him on general classification. And promptly, when they got about halfway up the climb, Dylan Turns said, thank you very much. He 
He's a very strong breakaway rider, turns and attacked De La Cruz, who was completely gassed, put more than nine seconds into him, significantly more, and turns took the red jersey. So I didn't really understand those tactics from Ineos. That didn't really make sense. I've spoken about it with a few people, and some people think he, it may not have been communicated to De La Cruz that he actually had turns behind him and how close turns was to him on GC. And it looked like De La Cruz was unnecessarily panicking about pressure coming from the peloton and trying to set tempo and keep the pace high in the breakaway. But that was a big mistake for them. Getting in the red jersey for De La Cruz would have somewhat salvaged this first week for Ineos. So, yeah, so David De La Cruz, he's a climber, isn't he? He, he is a climber, but he's not a, cl- a pure climber. He's a bit of a bigger guy, an all-rounder. He's, he used to be on quick step and was not one of their preferred climbing guys. Enric Mas sort of ascended as their next Spanish GC hopeful. But De La Cruz can definitely climb. He's the sort of guy who, on a steep finale, I've seen him in Vuelta a Burgos, he'll, he'll lose maybe a minute to a Mikel Landa or Mikel Landa Lopez. So in a breakaway group, up a steepish climb, he would be favoured to actually at least be in the top three from a break in terms of climbing. But because this climb wasn't actually particularly steep, it was more of a 4%, 5% climb. And the pros go up a 4 or 5% climb full gas. They can go up that at 25 to 28 kilometers an hour. And being 70 to 75 kilos, like Dylan Turns and a sort of punchier rider, actually suits Dylan Turns more than a Dela Cruz, who's more of a watts per kilo guy, up maybe a steeper 7 to 9% climb. Yeah, sure. I mean, but at the welter, it's Wout that's leading the team, right? That was the plan. And it was very, the drama before the Vuelta started, before even stage one started, and everyone was scratching their head when Kenny Alessandra, who's been a loyal domestique for Chris Froome, he was pivotal in Chris Froome winning the Giro. And he can really tow people up and protect people in steep pinches. He's about five foot one, 52 kilos. He landed in Spain the day before La Vuelta had travelled there and Fran Millar, the CEO of Ineos, called him and said, sorry, Kenny, you're not racing La Vuelta. David de la Cruz is racing instead of you. And that was strange because for Walt, if you were Walt Poles, you've now had a premier, and Elisande is a premier super domestique level rider. He's now been removed. He would have protected Poles on the steep, steep mountains even in, in a Sandora stage in stage nine. He's been removed and a sort of GC competitor, David de la Cruz, who really won't be helping out Walt Poles too much, I wouldn't have thought, has replaced him. Some people thought, well, that's because David de la Cruz is a Spanish rider. There was pressure to put a Spanish rider instead of a French rider and Kenny Alessand is leaving Ineos, I believe. So that was a bit strange, even from the outset, because Powell, this is supposed to be Walt Poles, his chance to be the GC leader for Ineos. And obviously he's spent years as a loyal domestique, super domestique for Chris Froome, Geraint Thomas, and most recently, a month and a half ago, in the Tour de France, assisting Bernal winning. Yeah, very impressive, to be honest. I'm just looking up. Yeah, it's nice to see Vasil Kurienka racing uh, for them at the Vuelta. I th- he, he had some health issues earlier this year. I thought he maybe had to stop due to some heart condition or something. But anyway, I, I, I recall, I saw Vasil Kurienka at, at the Tour of Britain last year and he he is old man he he looks old and he is still racing at the highest level putting on these like monster turns on the front 
So fair play to Vassal, if you are listening. Um, who knows? He could be. What do you think? Honestly, I thought he'd retired because uh, I hadn't <laughs> seen him for a couple of years. And he, he's 38 years old and he's, he, he's not one of these guys who's just been sitting in the peloton for the last five years, not doing too much work. He's the guy on the flatter stages like Tony Martin's role is for Jumbo Visma. Tony Martin's not the guy that's going to be helping Primoz Roglic on steep mountains. That's Seb Kuss and was supposed to be Kreuzweg. Tony Martin's the road general like Luke Rowe is for Ineos who gets on the front on the flatter stages, controls breakaways, controls the front of the race on the flat. And they're the sort of guys who at the end of a tour, there's sometimes it's a statistic for you know the man who spent the, mo- the, the most time with his nose in the wind on the front of the peloton and it's either someone like Vasil Kudienka or Tony Martin. Cool so let's let's try and wrap up our Vuelta week one look back Pat. So in summary what would you say and what are your predictions for the rest of the race? In summary the best stage and most exciting stage was stage seven Master La Costa. If anyone's got 10 or 15 minutes spare of their lunchtime Go and watch the highlights of that climb. It's a ridiculous gradient. 4.2 kilometers at 12%. Alejandro Valverde, Naira Quintana, Primoz Roglic, Michel Angel Lopez duking it out. Massive watts. Valverde, apparently they put out 6.6, 6.7 watts per kilo for that climb. Go and watch it. It's an elite performance up ridiculous gradients. I think the big winner of week one despite the crash, is Primoz Roglic. He has plummeted in the betting markets. He's now the prohibitive favourite to win this Vuelta because this week one was extremely hard. It was extremely mountainous. They had these mountaintop finishes. They had the Andorran finish. And he has battled it out with the pure climbers, quote-unquote, Nara Quintana and Mujalan Lopez, and shown that Primoz Roglic can hang with them and even put time into them, six seconds, on Masala Costa, the hardest climb. So... With the time trial coming up, only being six seconds behind Quintana, he his team must be absolutely stoked. I am going to be watching the final two weeks of the Vuelta a little bit more closely, to be honest with you, only because, as you've been telling me all week, it's been such a, such an interesting week of racing. So very much looking forward to it. Excellent. Stages 13 and 15. Stage 13 is up to Los Machucos. Very difficult climb. And stage 15 is another great climb as well. So if those two, if you want to pick in the next week's stages to watch, those will be the two. Very good. There, there you have it. There you have it. Okay, now moving on swiftly, Pat. Let's very quickly talk about the Tour of Germany. Mm, the Tour of Germany. I would say it's, it's a pretty niche race. Didn't it only come back a couple of years ago or something? The Deutschland Tour. Yeah, it's the it's Deutschland Tour. And it's, not, it's not even a world tour race. But then I saw on Twitter someone tweeted the quick step lineup for it. And I said, hold on a minute. The, this is headline name riders riding. That may not be at, be at peak fitness, but here's some of the names that were contesting this four stage race Remco Evenepoel, Geraint Thomas, Julian Alaphilippe, and Caleb Ewan. So massive names. And there was some super exciting racing. Evenepoel, I think the most exciting thing, and this has gotten no play across general media outlets is really is Remco Evenepoel had a hundred kilometer solo breakaway in one of the stages what? and Vincent yeah, hundred kilometer solo breakaway he didn't win the stage but still obscene and 
on the front of the peloton, driving it, trying to bring him back, was no other than Geraint Thomas and Vincenzo Nibali. So two former Tour de France champions chasing the 19-year-old, 19-20-year-old solo breakaway. Okay, first question is, why are all these big, huge names at the Deutschland Tour? What's so special about it? I don't think there's anything particularly special about the race itself. It doesn't carry a massive amount of prestige. It's a Europe Tour-level race. But I think riders like Geraint Thomas, Nibali, people who might be having... people who might be prepping for the world championships, they don't want to... Geraint Thomas has come out many times in the last week and said he can't believe how unfit he is. I know it's he's obviously a fit person, but how his fitness has declined after the Tour de France effort. And this is a way for them to keep that race fitness, keep themselves in shape without having to endure a, a significant, you know, a long training block because we're now getting to the back end of the year and after winter and then racing in spring classics and then Giro Tour de France, riders aren't particularly excited mentally about a six-week, two-month training block. It's much easier for them to just go and have a low-pressure race. This is a low-pressure race for Grant Thomas. Go and race, see how you go, see how your fitness is, go and break away or attack here and there, and it's just a better way for them to break up a training block, I think. No, no, absolutely. Especially as you say with the with the world championships. Just what are we? We're about yeah. I mean, less than a month away, really. About three or four weeks. That should be very exciting. Lots to talk about there as well. Um, so anything particularly noteworthy so far, other than even a Pules, um, breakaway at the Deutschland Tour? Any star names that have been winning stages? I mean, who who won the race? Is it over yet? So Jesper Stoyven for Trek Sigafredo won the race. It was it was only four stages, and he. He won ahead of, uh, and he won ahead of so- Sonny Cobrelli. So there are no like mountaintop finishes or anything like that. But a rider who I think is going to be coming in the top five or at least the top ten in a Grand Tour next year, and maybe contesting a race like Romandie Criterium de Dauphiné, is Alexei Lutsenko. He won the Arctic Race of Norway just I think a month and a half ago, whilst the Tour de France was on where he, in the last stage, pipped Warren Bargui, the former King of the Mountains winner, by one second to win general classification. That's a fantastic stage to watch if anyone wants to watch some exciting racing, that last stage. And he came fourth in this Deutschland Tour, and he seems to have turned his head around as a younger rider. He's only he's turning 27 this week, but maybe so there was some criticism of him within Astana, their team management, a couple of years ago that he wasn't the most focused guy, but he's Kazakh national champion now. He's getting really good general classification results. He's a really strong all-round rider, and I think he's going to be one to watch next year in maybe the Giro or Tour de France. So I'm excited about him. And Casper Askren, he's 24-year-old for Quick Step. He won a stage. He seems to be friends with Renko Venepol, and he's about six foot three. He came second this year in the Ronde van Vlaanderen and looks to be ready, set, and built for dominating the classics for quick step in the next five to seven years if not longer nice interesting about Lutsenko then so I guess Astana are kind of looking for someone to take over from Fulsang aren't they as a kind of leader GC all-rounder type yeah they, they yeah Astana have a bit of an aging cast Michel Angel Lopez is not too old but Jakob Fulsang although he's had good results this year in Dauphiné and but Lewis Leon Sanchez is quite old as well he's at least 36 so 
they're bringing, and, and the Izaguirre brothers, 30, 32. So Lutsenko is filling that 24 to 27-year-old range of riders that are their future stars. Excellent. Good age. Good age bracket, huh, Pat? Very good. Cool. So look, that's the tour of Germany. In summary, it seemed like an interesting race to watch, not least because there are some big, big names there, basically. Uh, only a four-stage race, but some exciting racing nonetheless. Remco, even a pole, even a Puel, even a Huel, uh, he seemed to just put in this ridiculous breakaway. So plenty to, uh, to, uh, to look at there at the Tour of Germany. Moving on, Pat, let's talk about some other cycling news slash gossip from the world of cycling this week. I mean, there's just a few things to cover off, I suppose. Pose. It's is the transfer season. The transfer season is upon us. So we've just heard very recently, actually, about Carapaz moving to Ineos. Interesting move. What do you think about that? Well, cycling is one of the weirdest sports for a number of reasons, but not least because <laughs> not least because riders leaving their teams. It seems to be leaked and announced months in advance. People knew or. We're pretty sure that Richard Carapaz was going to Team Ineos in, during the Giro. He'd agreed terms before he even won the Giro. But then sometimes people renege on it. Mikael Landers reneged on where he's going. But today it was confirmed in writing that Richard Carapaz is going to Team Ineos. And I think given he's crashed, he crashed before the Vuelta, his relationship with Movistar destroyed as a result of it. I, I think that was his last big chance to, con- to contest a Grand Tour. Excuse me. I think that was Carapaz's last big chance to contest a Grand Tour in this Vuelta because at Ineos, they have a completely stacked roster of riders. If Froome comes back, if the Tour de France stage and profile is more normal next year, meaning less altitude and more cobbled stages, crosswindy sort of things, or crosswind sort of stages, that suits a Grant Thomas sort of rider. So Carapaz, he's going to be below the pecking order, below Sivakov, another young rider, Egan Bernal, Thomas Froome, and he's going to be a super domestique. I'm not sure what they've told him about his role, but it's going to be like Roberto Heras. He was a rider for US Postal, and he had already won, I think, La Vuelta before he went to US Postal, and then he, he was under the impression he'd be a contender for the Tour, but all he did for the next five to six years was ride on the front for Lance Armstrong in the mountains. So I think... That's Carapaz's future. He's going to get paid a lot of money for it. Don't begrudge him. Don't begrudge him it. He's won the Giro, but I don't think he'll be contesting any Grand Tours in the next couple of years, at least. Hold on. So that guy went to US Postal thinking that he was going to usurp Lance as leader. Well, maybe not usurp Lance, but maybe maybe get a chance to win at some point. So <laughs> no one expects. Brilliant. <laughs> maybe. So he'd come, he'd come first in the Vuelta in two thousand in the year two thousand, and it's just like no one expected for him to win for so many years. Normally things rotate around because it's it's incredibly difficult to hold a high level and actually win Grand Tours year in year out. And he thought he was going to get opportunities to contest the Tour de France instead of, but instead he won the Vuelta a España four times. So I guess he, he didn't have the worst career, Harris. But yes. Spend most the of Welter time. four times is 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 pretty good, huh? Yeah, you Welter four times is nothing to sh- turn your nose up at more than more Grand Tours than I've ever won. 
Brilliant. Okay, what else have we got? We've got the news that Quintana is going to Arkea Samsic. So Arkea Samsic at the moment are a pro Conti team, but they're moving up to World Tour, aren't they? They must be because I, I believe they are because they've got they've got Andre Grappel on the team now. They're a French team. Quintana's moving over there. This again, this was leaked months and months ago, and it creates this weird dynamic where Movistar have a rider that could potentially be their GC leader that's leaving in a, after the end of this season to go to another team. He's going to get paid a lot of money, Quintana, but I don't hold out much hope for him at Arkea Samzic. If he can't do it at Movistar, I, I think there's very little chance he's ever contesting GC on, in the Tour de France again. And he'll struggle to podium on a team like Arkea Samzic where Warren Buggy's not had the best time there either. Andre Grappel's career has definitely taken a turn for the worse there, but he was aging anyway. So I'm not expecting too much from Quintana there. Maybe a stage hunter instead. Yeah, interesting. I wonder how much they're paying him. I think Quintana, Quintana has a terrible relationship now with the Spanish management at Team Movistar. I think they're barely on speaking terms from all reports. and. A lot of the Spanish riders don't particularly like Quintana either. I think Quintana in his career has often shown that he would rather come third or second in the Tour de France than risk not getting on the podium and winning the Tour de France. And maybe that's because he'd rather have whatever money it has that comes with winning, getting on the podium versus risking losing that at all. Because it's, it's a lot of money. He's from, he's from Bogota. He's not had the most affluent upbringing so i can't begrudge him that at all he's rags to riches story like a lot of these Colombian riders are but he'd be getting paid a lot at Arkea, but i don't expect big results either yeah we shall see we shall see now the only other item we were quickly going to cover was away from the world of bike racing just temporarily if we may so this week um is eurobike uh now i am going out to eurobike later on today eurobike is the world's biggest cycling trade show uh, it takes place in Germany every year. Honestly, you 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 attend this this behemoth of of a of a place. Honestly, it, it's this enormous structure with just thousands and thousands of of people, bike brands all across the world. The whole cycling industry congregates into this place near Lake Constance in Germany every year, uh, and it's often the place. A little less relevant these days, but it was often the place where big announcements uh, each year would be made by by cycling brands, particularly around uh, latest tech and new bike releases, that type of thing. Uh, so this year, what is what can we look out for? I suppose so far, I'm only aware that Wahoo are going to be releasing something quite exciting on the tech side. There's rumors of a there's rumors of a smart bike, I believe, something like that to rival some of the things that tax are are putting out there so that'll be interesting to see uh what else ceramic speed ceramic speed made some headlines last year because they introduced this this very novel concept of a chainless drive train uh you may have seen this and it's the sort of grooved disc that works with a set of pinions to to move the bike forward it is very revolutionary uh, and was making a lot of noise last year. So this year, what they've done is they've put it in a wind tunnel at Specialized Wind Tunnel Facility over in the States, and they've worked out that it's something like 3% more aerodynamic than any bike ever, or something like that, as always with all of these aerodynamic claims. Uh, 
And apparently they will also be releasing some new news about this uh, this chainless drivetrain system at Eurobike. So we're going out there and we'll see what all the fuss is about. Anything else, anything else exciting that comes out of Eurobike, uh, we can we can discuss next time and have a have a chat about that. I guess you won't be going to Eurobike, Pat, a bit far for you. I won't, but I, I want people for next year at Eurobike 2020, I want people to reach out to Cycling Pulse at Official Cycling, reach out to me, the Lantern Rouge YouTube channel. I want you to comment and tell us what is the least revolutionary but most effective bike tech upgrade you want to see. And I want to see a lightweight, lightweight climbing bike with bright colours for safety, with a BSA normal English bottom bracket and non-proprietary components mass-produced. Simple, effective, and similar to what Canyon has, but without the weird proprietary headset. And I know brands are trying to compete on who has the most novel things, but as people can tell, I'm pretty much of a no-frills guy. I like stuff that works and doesn't break. So if a, if a brand brings that out next year, it could be a bit of a counterculture move. It could be a bit of a media or marketing counterculture type strategy because compared to the ceramic speed it's the opposite of that that's what i would do or i would look for and if i was a consumer that's what i would be like looking to buy that sort of buy so, so supreme superior climbing for the mass market that's that's what you're looking at pat i like it well i'm very i'm very skeptical about the benefit of aero frames i think for the mass market aero frames are a waste of money and create more hassle. If you're working on it yourself, you don't have a team mechanic and you're looking after it for you and you're not sprinting in bunch sprints at 65, 70Ks an hour and getting, and getting paid to do so. I think the hassle and the less preferable handling of an aero bike compared to a lightweight climbing climbing bike, quote-unquote, because climbing bikes will go just fine on the flat if you have the power. I think they're a bit overrated for the general consumer. That is a huge statement, Pat, and something we could talk about for hours. Overrated. Aero bikes are overrated. Right, we're going to leave it at that. Okay, very quickly then, Pat. Um, this coming week, or next week even, is the Tour of Britain. Now, the Tour of Britain is a pretty decent race uh, these days. Uh, I think you have 10-odd World Tour teams and a few domestic teams over here in the UK. But the big story, the big headline story really is that MVDP, otherwise known as Matthew van der Poel, he will be appearing at the Tour of Britain. It'll be very interesting to see how he does. Presumably, he is looking to get in some some form and experience some British roads ahead of the World Championships at the end of September. Yeah, Matthew van der Poel, between him and Remco van der Poel, they're probably the most exciting names in cycling at the moment. For me, they represent a new era of cycling Similar to how the NBA, the up-and-coming stars like Stephen Curry and Kevin Durant really changed changed the paradigm of how the NBA is consumed and fans interact with it from the traditional media to Instagram. Vanderpol and Vanderpol massive social media stars, and there's a reason for that, and that's because Matthew Vanderpol is probably the most lethal all-round finisher in cycling at the moment. He can go long-range sprints, uphill, short, sharp sprints flat even in the peloton everyone's seen his Amstel gold race finish he's got a massive engine 
And the Tour of Britain is worth watching just to watch him alone. It's kind of like when Cristiano Ronaldo was a younger player at Manchester United. Even in a random fixture, you just have to tune in to watch this ethereal talent. And that's why I'll be watching the Tour of Britain and following it closely, especially because he's obviously the current favourite to win the World Championships in Yorkshire in later, later this month. Yeah, honestly, that is going to be so cool to watch, isn't it? The World Championships. Um, again, we will be talking about that uh, in a couple of weeks' time and having a look at what will be happening up there in Yorkshire during that week in September. But I think that's all for this week, actually, on the Rouge Report. Pat, thank you very much for joining. Thanks for your insight. Lots of exciting racing happening at the moment, coming towards the end of the season, the back end. Uh, but nevertheless, still lots to talk about. So we will see you guys next week. Uh, and yeah, have, have a nice week as well, Pat. Over to you. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thanks for having me on, Ollie. Really enjoyed doing this pod. Nice to get the thoughts out. Sometimes when you're watching the Vuelta a España at 3 a.m. in the morning in the middle in Australia on the couch because your girlfriend's kicked you out because the light's too bright on the laptop. It gets a bit lonely, so it's good to have someone to talk to about the cycling. Glad everyone enjoyed listening to it, and we'll see you all next week.